The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. Saw this today. I seamless a $22 avocado toast, and this is what arrived. And man, it's a box with like a sad piece of toast, avocado all over to the side. It, it looks horrible. <laughs> this is from Taylor Lorenz. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic. And The Atlantic, you know, it's like one of those pseudo-highbrow, uh, like The New Yorker and, and all of those kind of liberal publications. Well, yeah, she's a staff writer for them. And she caught a bit of grief over this whole uh, thread that she put up about avocado toast. Which, you know what? My wife likes avocado toast. I'm not a big fan of it. I, you know what, though? I'm simply not going to ever buy avocado toast because it's such a trendy millennial thing to do. Okay. You know, but that's just me. I've always been that way. You know, the Titanic came out. Everybody's going, ah, you got to see this movie, the Titanic. I boycotted it. Never saw it until probably a couple of years ago. <laughs> and it wasn't even by choice. My son was obsessed with the Titanic. We actually sat down. He made us watch a computer generated account of the Titanic sinking, the moments of it, and it went for like two hours. It was on YouTube, and it would, and it was really funny too. By the way, this is just a side note. It was really funny because it got to a point where this computer-generated account was so serene with the sound of the waves, and then it would scare the crap out of you every five seconds with this flare that would show up. It just boom, and everybody would jump in the house. But so I actually, you know, it's the same thing with when people started shaving their head. Once Pearl Jam and everybody did in the mid-90s. Well, I grew mine out. So I'm not going to go with the avocado toast, okay? Just letting you know that. But so she orders this $22, uh, you know, avocado toast that she got through Seamless, which is this, you know, online delivery app. And she said, yeah, I know. I played myself here. I was hungry and I was lazy. Then she said, well, the replies to this devolved just as predicted. One came in and said, Modern women can't even make this themselves. That's why they support human trafficking and slave labor. Another person jumped in and said, we need a livable wage. People need to raise the minimum wage to one avocado toast per hour. Another one said, millennials, it's my right to force society to pay for my birth control because of health care and its expense. Also, millennials, $22 avocado toast. This Democrat paid $22 for toast and avocado, and we're supposed to trust them to run our economy? Now, she goes on to say, to clear a few things up about my viral avocado toast tweet, luckily I don't have student debt, so no, I'm not buying food instead of paying down interest on my predatory loans. Yes, I could have made my own toast, but I didn't have all the ingredients. Yes, I could have gone to the store and... But I was actually helping my boyfriend move all day yesterday and then was out late. So guess what? I was being lazy. Luckily, I'm in a financial position where spending $22 in one day isn't going to break the bank. The toast was supposed to come with a salad for what it's worth. People keep relating this toast to socialism, birth control rights, feminism, health care, human trafficking, minimum wage, Hillary Clinton. 
You're thinking too hard, my friends. I am just a modern woman who felt like some avocado toast let me live. <laughs> to which, you know, I actually replied, uh, you know, I said, from a constitutional conservative capitalist standpoint, I don't care if you purchase a $22 slice, slice of avocado toast. Do not care. Have zero Fs to give on that one. Because you know what? If you're in a financial position where you can be fine with that decision, well, it's your money. You do what you want with your money. The problem is this chick is also the same person who wrote for uh, ideas like universal basic income and, and things like socialized medicine, you know, big government single health payer for all, you know, because they look at they look at the government as this commune. It's a commune of people together. We all chip in together. Kumbaya, my lord, kumbaya. Give a single payer, my lord, kumbaya. But it's, it doesn't work that way, okay? Just as the FBI building is the ugliest site in the world and Donald Trump is on some mission right now to rebuild it, it's a, it's a prime example of the government just doing what it, what it requires, Okay, it's going it, to, you need an FBI building? We'll give you a building, and it's going to be the ugliest piece of crap because we're only going to build it to whatever expense we can use. It's not going to be innovative. It's not going to be beautiful. It's not going to be technologically advanced. It's going to use whatever it can based on the money that's doled out to it because it's not in a business uh, of generating income. It's not a profit generator. It takes money. And these same people push for universal basic income. But guess what? Universal basic income doesn't seem to be working anywhere in the world. And we don't know the technological advances that will come about when AI gets implemented. We do know we're going to lose a lot in the workforce in certain areas, but we don't know the gains that are going to uh, uh, you know, arise. We don't know. But the, this is from the Washington Examiner. It might seem a pipe dream straight from one of the left-wing darlings of the moment, a guaranteed regular paycheck from the government. But universal basic income has its own fans on the right as well, including no less Charles Murray, the pioneering conservative scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, who in 2016 called it our only hope to deal with a coming labor market unlike any in human history. They've always said that, but anyways... The idea attracts those concerned with perceived wealth inequality and the eradication of jobs through accelerating technology, as well as those who view the sprawling modern system of social support and transfer payments, you know, social security payments, as too costly and demeaning to recipients. But it's yet to actually catch fire among po politicians who would have translated this theory into action. Senator Bernie Sanders, who lit the liberal fire within the Democrat Party, says the universal basic income is worth exploring, but he hasn't actually backed it. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has also kept it at arm's length. The only public utterance of the avowed socialist appears to have made was a tweet on April 2nd that read, UBI is still being hashed out on a macroeconomic level, I believe. Some futurists say a UBI will happen, saying it's the only solution in an economy where robots and artificial intelligence will perform more of the work. From a liberal point of view, UBI is usually seen as a supplement to the existing panoply of transfer payments and social safety net um, that most Western nations already have in place. They often place it alongside 
uh, plans for universal government-sponsored health care, tuition-free college, other expansive spending roles as cornerstones of their vision. But it hasn't worked in Finland. Kind of fell apart there. It's pretty amazing. In Finland, for example, a random sample of 2,000 unemployed people began receiving 506 euros a month in 2016. The Finnish agency that runs the program, Kila, the Finnish Social Security agents, uh, Agency, which they failed to mention in this article, I actually found that somewhere else, had sought it be an extension of it, but the government rejected that, and the program will wind down next year as planned. Statistics and findings of that pilot program remain closely guarded. It's amazing. In Ontario, Canada, a small-scale UBI program began in 2017, and in Scotland, too. A debate about UBI began in November when the government announced it was providing more than 325000 in seed money to begin UBI programs in pockets of Einberg and Glasgow. In the U.S., some municipalities are moving towards some form of UBI, including California, the city of Stockton which declared bankruptcy in 2012 and hopes to float its UBI in August. Yeah, give them that opportunity. I'm sure that's going to work out swimmingly. The money to provide 300,000 people there with $500 a month won't come from the strained public coffers, however, but from outside groups. Yeah, that's how it's going to work. And this is actually one of the co-founders of Facebook's idea. But from Bloomberg, they said Finland's basic income test wasn't ambitious enough. The payments encourage beneficiaries to take work that doesn't pay a living wage. What? You don't say. The Finnish Social Security Agency, Kila, has failed to secure the funding it needs to extend its UBI experiment beyond the year. Although it's sad that this grand leftist idea is suffering a setback, Finland's trial effort deserved its fate. Before the experiment was approved by the government in 2016, Kila officials talked of paying the equivalent of $974 a month in unconditional income to test groups of working-age citizens. But by the time the program began last year, the amount was whittled down to the equivalent of $683. If if they extended this to the whole country, the cost of the earlier proposal would have exceeded the Finnish government's entire revenue. Of course, it does not work. (laughs) I mean, they talk about this in other areas. In the Dutch city of Dukrecht and Ontario, Canada, and all these other locations where they've tried it out and it just doesn't work because you can't pay people not to do anything. I mean, it, it also says here's one of the one of the really key statements I thought was pretty amazing. Keela is not promising to release any results of the experiment, which involves 2000 people until the end of 2019. But it was clear from the start that the basic income Even such a low one is an extremely expensive way to boost precarious forms of unemployment. I call that a market distortion. I mean, think of the ramifications. If the government injects money into the populace, they might decide to work shorter hours. They might take jobs that are unsustainable for lower wages. Those jobs may become uh, situated in a new market price for those looking for employment. You know? Or maybe it boosts forms of employment that wouldn't be economically viable on its own. That's what it does. When you pay people to not be incentivized, they're not going to do anything. They're going to find other things to do, and they're not going to be productive. And we don't know what kind of avocado toast is coming down the line. But we don't need to have somebody pay $22 for our avocado toast just because we don't have the incentive to take that job on on ourselves. Back in a second. This is Adrian Slade.
So universal basic income doesn't seem to work anywhere, no matter how they contort it. Daddy's allowance is not only unsustainable, but it causes market distortions in the labor market. It props up jobs that shouldn't even be propped up. But again, the question is always, how do you pay for it? But like every progressive program, it's always because they just didn't implement it properly or correctly, and they didn't put enough money into it, or even both. It's funny how capitalism was implemented and didn't really even need a reboot, did it? Nope. <laughs> Again, I always say this. Capitalism, the free exchange of goods and services for those who want to return, is a perfect system. It's we as sinful, corrupt beings. Creation that is corrupt, that taint and corrupt the system. The dark aspects of crossing moral lines because we've lost respect for others or we don't treat our neighbors properly causes it to be corrupt. That's why you'll have, oh, it's evil CEOs. He's going to go out and cut all these deals that are shady. And well, you know what? That's because he's operating outside of what's virtuous and moral. That doesn't mean the system's bad. That means the guy who's operating that way is. Do you understand how what I'm talking about here? I mean, it's one of those things where it's a great system until you put in the fact that human beings are flawed. But even that, even with that being the case, it still overcomes and succeeds because there's more than enough people attempting and struggling against that conflict within each of us to rise above it and be virtuous and respect our neighbors that allows it to succeed. And you know what? It allows everyone to succeed. Now, socialism fails every time it's tried, but it always slides towards a despotic totalitarian regime in the end. Why is that? Well, for the same reasons. The people running it are not virtuous, moral people because we have sinfulness in our lives. So it causes us to go, hmm, well, you know, I might take a little bit here, might take a little bit there, even though, they're, even though everybody else is getting their fair share. So socialism, it, it fails every, every time it try, it's tried because it, it builds this shielded elite group, whether it be a regime, a king, whatever the case may be, who may even start out as some benevolent managing group, but then they always move towards lining their own pockets, placing themselves in shielded positions of power and wealth, and, and they put, place themselves above the citizenry that they're supposed to be equal to because they're tainted. And they feel they're talented, highly intellectual, extraordinary, unique people. A group of people that should be deemed higher than everyone else because they're in place to lead. So they're in higher regard. Either system is affected by corrupt, sinful beings, but at the very least, capitalism can rise above that barrier while socialism collapses upon it. Think about the straw issue. I mean, look, an evil corporation cannot force you to go buy a straw, and it cannot just take all the straws away because if somebody else wants to offer the straws as a competitor, well, if there's a market for straws, they're going to exist. The government can. The government can fine you. The government can take a gun to your head and say, hey, you're coming with me. I'm going to lock you up over a straw, a plastic straw. Do you give the government that kind of power? So that's what the left doesn't understand. But when they look at things like Bernie Sanders, Medicaid for all or Medicare for all, a plan that the AP had said 
would increase government health care spending by $32.6 trillion over 10 years, according to a study by a university-based libertarian policy center. The latest plan from the Vermont Independent would require historic tax increases as government replaces what employers and consumers now pay for health care, according to the analysis released by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. It would deliver significant savings on administration and drug costs, but increased demand for care would drive up spending, of course. Responding to the study, this is where Sanders goes with it. He took aim at the Mercatus Center, which receives funding from conservative Koch brothers, the evil Koch brothers. Somehow Soros isn't evil, but the Koch brothers are. He says, if every major company or country on earth can guarantee health care at all, why achieve better health care outcomes while spending substantially less per capita than we do? It is absurd for anyone to suggest the United States cannot do the same. It, that's grossly misleading and biased reporting by the Koch brothers' response to a growing support in our country for Medicare for all. Sanders' office has not done a cost analysis, a spokesperson said. But the Mercatus estimates are within the range of other cost projections for Sanders' 2016 plan. So, yeah, he didn't take the time to calculate the cost, but you know what he did do? He got those mean old Koch brothers. Never mind, I mean, that he didn't even think about the cost. I mean, let's look at the United Kingdom's government-run health care. God keeps sending, lifting up a veil from overseas so that we actually get a glimpse of what's to come of government-run health care. And it verifies everything we said. The left calls us conspiracy nuts thinking that, you know, as they say, death panels don't exist. We think that they do. They may not be in name, but in functionality and practice, they do. Charlie Gard, Alfie Evans, none of them were deemed services or none of them were allowed services because government decided it was impractical. But they did so because they weren't able to justify the treatment. It's the government's interest. They wouldn't even let them go seek outside treatment. And then there's the story of a teenager being denied a heart transplant. Why would he need to be denied? Why would you need to be denied? The government has their interest at heart, not yours. What cost is it to the government? What burden is it placing upon the government? That's not your interest nor your child's interest. So now we can calculate how the government program will impact something. And when you do, you can see how it affects your interest. Um, You will also see how it affects the market price. Think of private schools versus uh, publicly funded competitors, they can operate below the sustainable revenue levels because of the deep pockets of government. But the supply to the private sector is smaller of you know, customers and the cost to be profitable is higher. Competitive wages for talent, labor, tuition rates, all are affected. But regardless of all this, the Ocasio-Cortez styled challengers are arising from all over the place. And you know what? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can't even figure out which side they should flip. Which color is her party and which color should we flip the seats in Congress towards? So we decided to make a little hip-hop jam with Ocasio-Cortez and her insane statements and the fact that she couldn't figure out which side of the aisle should be flipping. We decided to put it into a nice little hip-hop ditty for you to enjoy. We're gonna flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. We're gonna flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. We're gonna flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. 
We're gonna flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. Hello, everybody. Capitalism has not always existed in the world, and it will not always exist in the world. Profit at any cost. And so I do think that right now, when we have this no-holds-barred, Wild West hyper-capitalism, these things don't work. Housing as a right doesn't work. Healthcare as a right doesn't work. Universal college and trade school education doesn't work. Well, unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. Oh, um, I think it, what I meant is like the, the settlements that are increasing. I mean, I think I'd also just, I, I am not the expert on geopolitics. Flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. Flip this seat red. Flip this seat red in November. November. We all, you know, thought that's it. The big money's there, and we don't got it. So that's that's a wrap. Profit at any cost. I mean, I think I'd also just. I I am not the expert on geopolitics. Well, unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. These things don't work. We don't got it, so that's that's a wrap. Yeah, she's flipping seats red instead of blue, and she's busting some hip-hop beats. <laughs> Amazing. She doesn't know what she's talking about. By the way, remember, you can always tweet at the show, at Rants Out Loud on Twitter, or the official Twitter page for the show, at Adrian Slade Show. You can also email me, adrianslade-show at gmail.com, and give me, some, uh, give me some questions or suggestions for show topics. Back in a moment. <laughs> This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. So, the new socialist coup is being propped up by some interesting names you are most likely familiar with, and there's some new players arising from within this whole socialist coup of the Democrat Party. From the Associated Press, a millennial woman, new to politics, but energized by the Bernie Sanders campaign, makes a long shot run for Congress, challenging the establishment Democrat incumbent who has been in office for two decades. Sarah Smith, 30 years old, an underfunded progressive challenger to longtime Representative Adam Smith in Washington's 9th Congressional District, which runs from Bellevue through uh, South Seattle towards North Tacoma. She's actually thrown her hat into the ring. She was recruited to run by some national organizations that endorsed Ocasio-Cortez, and she embraces the comparison. She's running on a Sanders-esque platform of single-payer health care, free public college, refusing corporate donations, yada, yada, yada. Adam Smith says the race is nothing like the upset in New York City. He said, have you ever been to Queens, New York? He asked in a phone interview. Queens is not SeaTac or Seattle. I'm not Joe Crowley. And Sarah Smith is not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Other than that, the comparison's perfect. <laughs> it's amazing. Smith doesn't even live in the district. And that seems to be a running theme with the Democrats' party's offerings. Haven't you noticed that? No one ever lives in the district they want to represent? Going back to the article, she lives in Kent, about a half a mile from the district boundary. She and Ocasio-Cortez, along with many others, um, seem to be jumping into the fray with little to no knowledge of politics or even how their platforms could even be implemented. She's been propped up by a former Sanders operative group, 
who made an organization entitled Brand New Congress, which helps train candidates and provides campaign consulting and has endorsed 17 candidates who already run in primaries this year. Four have advanced to the general election. Only Ocasio-Cortez has defeated an incumbent. But, you know, the ignorance of Ocasio-Cortez and like this chick, Sarah Smith, it's stunning. They have little idea about the talking points that they support. And they're the same people that are out there like in Austin, Texas right now. Austin, Texas is this liberal, progressive bastion that's stuck right in the middle of Texas. The namesake of which was Stephen Austin. And what they're trying to do is they're saying, you know what? We need to change the name of Austin because Stephen Austin, he was founder of the Confederacy, even though he died years and years before that ever happened. But hey, facts don't matter. Hell, we can say, you know what? He was also known as Stone Cold. Stone Cold Stephen Austin. That's right. I mean, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand history. They don't understand civics. They don't understand economics. That's why they push for things like universal basic income, health care for all, college for everyone, you know, free tuition college, all of these things that you can debunk and you can say are not sustainable, they support them. And they also support removing, you know, Confederate statues and uh, removing the name Austin from somebody who wasn't even a part of the Confederate revolution. So, yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. And what's interesting is the people that are showing up to back people like Ocasio-Cortez. You know, I mean, they're obviously being groomed because... You know, after that horrific firing line interview where she got out there and said, I, I don't know geopolitics. I think it's bad that, that Israel is having to uh, attack over the settlements of Gaza, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about. They still get on these interview shows where they're treated with kid gloves and, you know, Trevor Noah from The Daily Show barely pushes back on her stances. But you know what's funny is he stumbled into having to push back just on simple, obvious questions, like, how do you plan to pay for it? But this time she seemed a little bit more confident on the show. And it could be because she knew she was going to get questions like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food? That's how the left does it to their side, you know. And on the, on the, on the Republican side, they would have said, what's your favorite food? Oh, you like tacos? Cultural appropriation, you racist. That's how it works with the uh, with the left and the right. But we want to look into who she's been palling around with since the firing line. And this was actually from Legal Insurrection. Socialist, Democratic, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Women's March leader, Linda Sarzor. Yeah, remember her? Linda Sarzor is an interesting character who always seems to show up. She was involved with Democracy Alliance. She is a part of the people that want to wear, you know, female genitalia wool hats knitted by Aunt Eunice down, uh, you know, in D.C. because they're fighting for women's rights, although she's also the same one that rebuked Bridget Gabriel uh, for, um, you know, saying she's not a true woman and advocated for, you know, uh, uh, genital mutilation. But, you know, never mind all that. Never mind the fact that she aligns with Louis Farrakhan, who called out gays and also called out, um, you know, white people. She's this great person who we should all look towards for equality and a champion and an activist. 
Well, she's hanging out with her Casio Cortez at the 16th annual annual Universal Muslim Association of America event held on July 29th. Ocasio Cortez and Sarsour claim that they are progressive women and champions of women's rights, but obviously the UMAA is anything but progressive and anything but a champion for women's rights. But never mind those facts. Ocasio Cortez didn't hide her hatred towards Israel when she fumbled on answers on the subject that she's not an expert on geopolitics on the issue. She said, the lens through which I saw the incident in Israel as an activist and an organizer, if 60 people were killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and 60 people were killed in the South Bronx unarmed, if 60 people were killed in Puerto Rico, I just look at that, Gaza, that incident, more than just, you know, as an incident. And to me, it would be just completely unacceptable if that happened on our shore, she said. A lot of babbling on there. Of course, the dynamics there in terms of geopolitics is very different than people expressing their First Amendment right to protest. Um, yeah, they don't have that in Gaza. But anyways, she called for the killing of she called the killing of Palestinians at the Gaza fence a massacre, although it's been known that terrorist groups Hamas encouraged people to breach this fence. And the majority of them that died at the fence were Hamas terrorists. But, you know, again, let's never let's not let those facts come into play here. So Linda Sarsour had to say this about Ocasio-Cortez. Alexandria is the hope that we've been waiting for. She is a young woman of color. She's Puerto Rican. She's a socialist, just like me. We are both card-carrying de uh, Democratic Socialist of America members. She is pro-Palestine. She's unapologetic. And the movement right now is elated because this is what you're going to see in this election season. It's a new day, a new generation, and Alexandria is what represents us and our values. She's also receiving support from another progressive socialist with some interesting background points, notably a doctor running for the Democrat nomination for governor in Michigan. Abdul El Saeed. Yes, this guy's good, too. It's great to see all these people running together, you know, because they're looking to push us into the fundamental transformation of America. This from PJ Media. The Guardian ran an unusually long profile on one Abdul Al Said, a 32-year-old Muslim doctor and son of Egyptian immigrants who's already campaigning heavily for governor of Michigan, even though the election won't take place until November of next year. The headline on Drew Phillips' article dubbed El Said as the new Obama. It was the ultimate puff piece. I, I read it. It really was. I had a hard time reading it because it was, it was worse than, what's your favorite color? I mean, listen to some of this. And shameless in its utter lack of objectivity and balance, it began as such pieces invariably do with an anecdote calculated to win sympathy for the subject. It starts as, when he was seven years old, El Said sat in the eye of Hurricane Andrew, drinking juice while swaddled under mattresses between his father and stepmother, who was holding El Said's newborn baby brother just home from the hospital. What does this story have to do with anything? <laughs> for Philip, it's a metaphor. At the moment, he says, American politics feels like a bit like being in the eye of a hurricane. Donald Trump is ready to attack North Korea. Neo-Nazis paraded in Charlottesville. No man can stop the hurricane. But in Michigan, a grown-up El Said is now having a go trying to keep the storm at bay. So, yeah. He's going to be the first Muslim governor in the history of the United States if he wins. And what's really interesting is some of the uh, background that no one is really ever covering because, you know, 
Let's not cover the details. Let's not give you the full story here. I mean, here's a part that I thought was interesting from this article. Whether or not Philip recognizes the contradiction that El Said described himself as a devout Muslim. He prays several times a day. He said that his Islamic values are at the center of his work as a civil servant. His father is an imam. He's a devout Muslim. That means he firmly supports Sharia law. But how does he square this with his purported approval of secular government? Is he a devout Muslim or a devout believer in the separation of religion and state? You can't be both. But he confronted this, and this is what they said about his approach towards the religion issue. Quote, the rumors surrounding El Said's faith are a small but persistent set of rumors spread by a handful of far-right websites preying on the uninformed and fearful. But he doesn't spell out what those rumors are. But his message is clear. Only the uninformed and fearful Islamophobes would be concerned about having a Muslim governor. Then there's El Said's staffers, with whom Philip is impressed as he is with the candidate himself. They're young, fun, smart, and they hail from Harvard and other elite institutions and are incredibly diverse. Philip tells us about a bathroom visit during which he sees El Said's staffers, a Muslim, washing his feet in the sink before praying, while another, a pierced and dyed queer, washing his hands in the next. You know, because a campaign that washes together stays together. I mean, this is ridiculous. So they're, they're going to show, well, I'm going to wash my feet and then I'm going to pray six times a day or what have you. And then the gay guys over here with the piercings, he's washing his hands in the seat next to him. That's unity. Back to the article. Oh, good. Another gay who thinks Muslims and gays are, as they say, allies in oppression. Exactly. There are a few details about El Said that Philip doesn't mention, obviously because they would damage the glowing picture he's trying to promote of the guy. For one, El Said is chummy with Linda Sarsour. Yeah, that's right. At the University of Michigan, El Said was vice president of the Muslim Association, the Student Association, and affiliate of the Muslim Brotherhood. Wow, that's not good. And it goes on further to state that while he was in school, in 2012, he was in med school, El Said received a Paul and Daisy Soros fellowship. Paul Soros, who died next the following year, was George Soros' brother. Some sources maintain that the Soros empire is funding Said's campaign and grooming him to eventually become president. That's what we're dealing with, and they're all back in these democratic socialists like Ocasio-Cortez. Don't forget, tweet at the show on Twitter, at Rants Out Loud. You can also follow the official Adrian Slade Show Twitter page, at Adrian Slade Show. Email me some content requests. Adrian Slade Show at gmail.com. Back in a second. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. So just to recap a bit, universal basic income, yeah, that doesn't work. And, and they are all dropping it in the places that it's being tried. You know, the healthcare, universal healthcare, government run healthcare, unsustainable, economically unviable. And it's funny because when you talk to these people that claim to be socialists, these big government progressives, they always say, and I was reading an article that actually brings this up. It's kind of ironic that he mentions it because I get it all the time online. When liberals defined and defend socialism, they go, what, you don't want roads and firefighters and police and infrastructure? And I'm like, those are necessary government, essential government services. That isn't socialism. 
And infrastructure, I love when they bring that up. That's the elusive infrastructure. That's where they go, hey, I want to sound smart and I want to defend all the big taxes because, you know, everybody should pay their fair share. And if we all chip in, you know, to the First National Church of Gov, if we tithe our 10 percent, then we can have infrastructure. Well, infrastructure, let's talk about that because they go, well, look at China. China has some of the most amazing airports. Yeah. You know what else they have? They have tons of pollution. They have built the world's largest air purifier. Go look it up. It's amazing. And when you see it just streets away from this beautiful airport, people are walking out with SARS mask on, looking like they just defogged the place for SARS. And they're walking out, you know, with these medical masks. It's yeah, that's a great little haven right there. You know, they always it shows how little they know about socialism, to be you know honest in the first place. But they always have to go to the Nordic utopia. And I love this quote that the article that I'm about to reference kind of uh, it says it says, can someone find me a conservative arguing that Venezuela is crumbling because of an abundance of fire trucks? Exactly. I mean, the liberals always go, well. It works in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway. You know, Ocasio-Cortez and Sarah Smith and Bernie Sanders, the Santa Claus list that they have, free college, government-offered health care, mandatory, uh, you know, paid maternity leave, tons of welfare benefits. You know, that's how they look at socialism, which is funny because when Bernie Sanders was going on and on about socialism, Denmark's prime minister asked him to stop calling his country a socialist country. This is from Investor's Business Daily. Denmark is not a socialist nation, says its prime minister. It has a market economy. Sanders, the Democratic presidential candidate at the time, who called himself a socialist, has used Denmark as the example of the socialist utopia he wants to create in America. During the Democrats' first debate, he said, We should look to countries like Denmark and Sweden and Norway and learn from what they have accomplished from their working people. While appearing in New Hampshire, Sanders said that he had talked to a guy from Denmark, so hey, he's got an authority there, who told him that in Denmark it is very hard to become very, very rich, but it's very hard to become very, very poor. And who wouldn't want to go to Denmark so that they could have multiple houses, right, Bernie? Well, speaking at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, the center-right Danish prime minister, Lars Rasmussen, said he was aware that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model with some sort of socialism. Therefore, he said, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. That's great. Rasmussen acknowledged that the Nordic model is an expanded welfare state which provides a high level of security to its citizens. But he also noted that it is a successful market economy with much freedom to pursue your dreams and live your life as you wish. To that, we'll add that Swedes, another of Sanders' inspirations, has for decades quietly moved away from its cradle-to-grave form of government welfare. And the Swedes are better off for having doing so, just as the Danes will continue to be better off as their government overhauls its welfare state. Remember, socialism is Government ownership of the means of production. So when these idiot democratic socialists go running around saying, well, we want democratic socialism. You know, we want nice socialism where everybody likes it. Well, you're still talking about Venezuela. Quit acting like you don't. 
They're the first ones to say, oh, Venezuela is not a socialist country. Well, they they did kind of, I don't know, take over the oil industry and oil production and then pegged their dollar, whatever their currency was at the time, to it, to where now it's what one Venezuelan, uh, you know, whatever it is, is to a million dollars, U.S. dollars, because of inflation. It's unbelievable. So, you know, the thing that they have to realize is the government owning the means of production is what socialism is. It's not just big bloated welfare. And that's the funny part of it all. That is what Denmark and Sweden and Norway, you know, that's what they operate under. And what's even crazier is it's all because they had rich eras of non-welfare that built up such a tremendous amount of momentum that when they'd started implementing their welfare, it ended up, you know, chipping away at it, but they were still ahead. So it's easy to offset. You know, I mean, if you get into it, um, the, the mark, the, this mix of free market capitalism and big government welfare programs that Scandinavia has, it was in spite of their generous government policies, not because of them. Economist Nima uh, Sandinali, who wrote a book about the myth of the Scandinavian socialism, noted in a case for Sweden from 1870 through 1936, Sweden was the fastest growing economy in the world. But after 1975, when the Swedish state began to expand in earnest, Sweden's economy noticeably slowed, falling from the fourth richest in the world to the 13th by the mid-1990s. Denmark's GDP growth from 1920 to 1965 was at 2.43%, and that slowed down from 1966 to 2010 to one73 Sweden's GDP growth from 1920 to 1965 was at 3.2%, slowing down to 1.93 from 1996 to 2010. Those are Obama-era GDP numbers, never breaking two, by the way. The top tax rate in Denmark is 60.4%. Sweden's is 56.4%. Unlike America, where its only top earners are subjected to the top marginal tax rate, in Scandinavia, the top rate applies to a sizable chunk of workers. Matt Palumbo, who wrote this story, goes on to say... If America had Denmark's tax brackets, someone earning 60000 a year would be subjected to the 60% top tax rate. And then there's a national sales tax of 25% in Denmark, Sweden, and Norway on most goods. I bring this up as a reminder that if we were to adopt Scandinavia's welfare policies, it wouldn't just be millionaires and billionaires footing the bill. A Scandinavian economist once said to the late Milton Friedman, who is amazing, by the way, in Scandinavia, we have no po uh, poverty. Milton Friedman replied, that's interesting, because in America, among Scandinavians, we have no poverty either. Now, Nima Sandinali also noted that it is equally interesting to look at Nordic Americans, a group that combines the Nordic success culture with U.S.-style capitalism. It is mainly the impoverished people of the Nordic countries who sailed across the Atlantic to find new lives. Danish Americans t today have fully 55% higher living standards than Danes in their homeland. Similarly, Swedish 
Americans have 53% higher living standards than the Swedes in their homeland. Even though Norwegian Americans lack the oil wealth of Norway, they have a 3% higher living standard than that of their cousins overseas. And when it comes to those on the bottom of the income distribution, the poverty rate among Swedish Americans is lower than native Swedes. Not only are the Danish and Swedish Americans earning 50% more than their counterparts back at home, the GDP is actually much larger. And they aren't taxed to death on that income either. According to Fraser's Institute, Economic Freedom of the World Index, there are plenty of areas where Scandinavia is more business-friendly than the United States, despite the noted extreme taxes on its citizens. For the most part of history, they've had a lower corporate tax rate than the U.S. Denmark taxes its corporations at 24.5%, Norway at 27 Sweden at 22 The Trump tax cuts, America finally brought it down to 39.1. And according to the World Bank, Denmark is the third easiest country to do business with globally, beaten only by capitalist Singapore and New Zealand. So we know that giving a competitive tax rate is going to bring business. And if we lower the tax rate on our citizens, more money is in their pockets. And the more you implement welfare and big government programs, the more you slow your growth. If the last eight years hasn't shown you that under Obama, then nothing could show you this. So that should debunk this silly little socialism experiment bandied about by Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to us every weekend on Mojo 5 the new platform for libertarian, conservatarian, conservative talk on Dash Radio as well. Also, check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Spotify, and various other podcast platforms. Get the free Roku channel in your streaming store. Also, you can donate patreon.com slash Adrian Slade Show, $2 a month or whichever amount you wish. You can also check out the blog, adriansladeshow.com. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>